Welcome to Crisis Leadership Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how organizations can develop strategies to detect potential crises, manage those crises creatively, and leverage what is learned through crises positively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jagenba, na Gayabu, Yarrawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has a resume which reads like a list of the top jobs in crisis leadership in Australia. He served as head of Australia's National Resilience Task Force within the Department of Home Affairs, was the Director General of Emergency Management Australia, and was the Commissioner for the Australian Capital Territories Emergency Services Agency responsible for the Territory's Fire Brigade, Ambulance Service, Rural Fire Service and State Emergency Service. Mark Crosswheeler has been awarded the Fire Service Medal, the National Medal and the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Commissioner's Commendation. After this long career at the peak of crisis management roles in Australian Government, Mark is now the founder and director of Ethical Intelligence, a leadership development consultancy which advocates compassion, courage, purpose, and meaning in organizational leadership. Mark Crosswiller, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Mark, can you tell me a little bit about your current role and the organization you found? Yes, certainly. So I'm the founder and director of Ethical Intelligence, which is a small organization that works with leaders to really to help develop their confidence and their competence in the space of leadership ethics, and particularly the space of compassion, uh, trust, humility, integrity, forgiveness, kindness, care, uh, the virtues essentially, and to try and reintroduce what is essentially fundamental to leadership, fundamental to how we identify ourselves, fundamental to what it makes us, uh, what what it means to be human, uh, is to operate through uh, the the ethics that take us towards human happiness and greater human flourishing. And many an Eastern and Western philosopher has spoken about the virtues for centuries and the thing I find quite refreshing about them, uh, leaving some of the normative arguments aside, is that they're still as relevant today as they were when they, when they were spoken about two and a half, three thousand years ago, before they were even written about, which there was you know, a gap of about 500 years between when they were spoken and when they were written about, but they still sustain us today, even in a rapidly changing context in a world that looks so remarkably different from two and a half thousand years ago, that the ethics still bring true, that it's still true to say that what brings happiness to most human beings is to be compassionate, that when we're thinking of someone else and acting and speaking on behalf of someone else or in order to reduce the suffering of somebody else, we just feel better about it. And it's not a narcissistic insight, it's a soulful insight. It's what kind of speaks to the true nature of who we are. So... So it took me, um, Daniel, you know, so many years to really get those insights and it was crisis and adversity and many years in emergency management and on the front line and then senior levels of management, executive management and being a commissioner and a director general and other things that really brought it all together to say, look, you know, what's the key to this? And essentially all those lived experiences personally and collectively were opening doors to great opportunities to be the best we can be. And that was to be the best we could be ethically. And so what I do now is advocate in the space of climate, uh, national security, intelligence communities and elsewhere to, to reintroduce some of these notions and to say, look, so many people are in the space of 
good. Uh, so in the, in the emergency management community, we've got climate change to deal with and its effects. And in the national security community, there's, you know, there's cyber warfare and all sorts of things happening in the, in the geopolitical space across the world. And people are committing to those, those uh, adventures, but not necessarily looking after their people along the way. So if we only take a utilitarian view of, of these challenges, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, and we don't hold people to account for their behaviour and, you know, their thoughts, words and actions along the way, then we're doing probably just as much harm inside our systems as the harm is doing to us that's coming from outside. And so it's fine to do with the harms from the, on the outside that are coming our way, but what are we doing about some of the harms on the inside of our own systems? How do we look after our people? How do we inspire our people and give them a sense of meaning and purpose that what they do is worthwhile? And it really bothers me, Daniel, that a lot of people I talk to have lost that sense of meaning and purpose. You're painting a much bigger picture of crisis leadership management and, you know, the whole idea, I guess, of community with inside an organisation, that an organisation is not just a business, but a community of people. Absolutely. Uh, organisations are part of a global lived experience. And, and I, I often say to people that problem solving is fine, but what we really are aiming to achieve is a better experience in life. And because life is a continuum, because, you know, we are events, we're not things, we, you know, we are a constantly unfold, unfolding entity of thoughts and feelings and emotions and physicality. How do you improve or have better experiences along the, along that journey between birth and death? How, how do you sum up at the end of your life and say that was worthwhile, that was meaningful, that made a contribution? And so I tend to take the view that you can't atomise or disaggregate into, and, and divide this thing up into little bits and pieces. I think what we're really talking about here is the totality of our lived experiences, of which crisis is part of that. And crisis, Daniel, can be highly overt, such as natural hazards, there for the world to see and we the world can see what's happening at the moment in California and Greece and Turkey and you know much of northern Europe with the flooding but it can be highly covert as well and it can be you know very very much tucked away in the corners of people's private lives and it's equally as important to be compassionate to those people as, as it is to the people who are blatantly going through something which is very uncomfortable so it might sound like too much but is it really too much if we condition humanity to, to think this way, to think about non-harmfulness in any and every aspect of life and to apply that in a way that says, look, it doesn't really matter what turns up. I've got the skills, the competency, the insights to know how to deal with it. If we just specialise in one area and we let our guard down in another area, then we're letting harm pop up another way. It's a bit like squeezing a balloon. You know, if you squeeze a balloon, the air disappears under your hand, but it just pops up somewhere else. So so how how do we have a more holistic view and a more view along along the, the process of a continuum that says, look, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we contribute to non-harmfulness. We contribute to a more compassionate world. We contribute our leadership, our communications, our thoughts, words and actions to making the world better. And I don't think that's a big ask. I think that is really where people want to be. And and it's it's a mentality. It's really about being more mindful. I think it's something that's available to everybody. I don't, I don't think you need a handbook. And I don't think you need a university or an institution to own it. I just think we need to be more human. And something we desperately need right now. Mark, it seems to me, if I can make an assumption, that probably these ideas that you're talking about now weren't present in your mind in your 20s that you 
probably came to a realization sometime through your career, um, which has been a very um, top end career in in some of the top echelons of, of government and crisis leadership. At what point in your personal narrative did you come across those ideas or did, did those ideas sprout from things that were happening in your life? It's a really good question. I think in the latter part of my senior executive career, so 10, 15 years ago, I mean, my senior executive career started about 23 years ago, but it dawned on me to sort of sum it up in a nutshell. For example, we were trying to make resilient people resilient. So we were we were talking to a cohort of people about being resilient, for example, and, and they were privileged people who had wealth, access to, you know, the equities of power, wealth and resource and were entrepreneurial and could get stuff done in their life. And and we wrote policies about that and, uh, you know, we deployed resources on that basis and we we found efficiency and effectiveness in our systems on the basis that citizens should do more. And then I walked those disaster grounds, as I had done since the age of 20, and realised that more and more people couldn't meet that standard, just simply couldn't meet it, that we were setting expectations upon citizens that were just becoming impossible to meet, particularly in the face of climate change. And then I looked at what governments were doing in the face of climate change, and it wasn't very much, really. And there was a lot of denial going on, and yet the lived experience would tell you, would tell anyone on the front line that things are getting worse. And even within a lifetime, it's really obvious to see things getting worse. That bothered me a lot. Uh, and, I, and I've and i been a thinker my whole life. It's, you know, I'm born with it, I'll die with it. And so I just kept reading and thinking and inquiring and eventually turned into a PhD, of course, as these things have a, have a tendency to do. And I realised that there's a tipping point or a threshold point that nature continues to offer us, which is where we all become vulnerable, where where life becomes precarious for everybody, irrespective of race, culture, creed, class, status, uh, gender, orientation, whatever, that there's a shared human experience of the precarious nature of life. And I saw leadership denying that and disavowing it and remaining invulnerable to those effects and continuing to write public policy, not wanting to look at vulnerability. So, for example, when I looked at resilience strategies or the narratives around resilience strategies, you know, a, a brief word count of a, of a strategy in one state revealed resilience was used, the word resilience was used over 400 times, and the word vulnerability was used about five times. And we just kept speaking to resilience, and we just couldn't bring ourselves to actually talk about why. Now, resilience really is essentially about the reduction of vulnerability, so the susceptibility to be harmed and the inability to cope. We want to reduce that potential and then increase our adaptive capacity. And that that requires institutions to do a lot of heavy lifting to, to establish the conditions for societies to flourish and for as many people in society as possible to flourish and, and reduce their own vulnerability and increase their adaptive capacity. But we pivoted some years ago in the mid-'90s and just told people it was a dangerous world and they needed to be resilient. We stopped looking at vulnerability to the extent at which we'd previously done. We, we stopped gearing our institutions towards addressing some of those root causes in the socioeconomic space. We let the market flourish and we let people survive through entrepreneurial actions. And those that dropped off the edges, we didn't pick them up and we didn't look after them well enough. And I saw all of that by through reflection, by looking back over my career and realising that more and more people were getting left behind. Uh, and that just wasn't acceptable to someone who, you know, sort of been through a lot, seen a lot and had briefed a lot. Working with prime ministers is a great honour. And so I got to see the system from the end of the hose, literally, to the office of the prime minister and, uh, and got to think about it and reflect upon it and realise that there were many, many good things that were happening, but there were lots of things we couldn't see. 
we just couldn't see. And one of those was the vulnerability of people because we were trained and taught not to look, uh, trained and taught to disconnect, uh, you know, to be tough, to be stoic, to be professional, to be efficient, uh, to be effective. And, and those words and that attitude and that worldview is rampant in public institutions. And, but it's also robbing people of the opportunity for meaningfulness. And um, many people I talk to feel quite hollow about what they're doing because they can't access or tap into that sort of deeper uh, level of being human. And I'm not saying that the personal experience should dictate the national policy, but what I am saying is that it goes a long way to empathising and being compassionate towards those that the policy is meant to be serving. And and I think that for me is the biggest challenge. So it's it's like many things, Daniel. I think there's you, know, you get a sense of a calling in your life. I think you know, talking to many young people these days, they want there's so much they want to do in the space of climate or humanitarian work uh, in the, in the world of disadvantage, and it's really refreshing. Uh, and I would say to anyone of any age, you know, what what is your calling? You know, what what is blissful for you? What is what is your sense of purpose and meaning? And pursue it. And that's really all I've done is to turn a thirty six year career into something that I see as meaningful and helpful to other people. Hope, hopefully, and uh, I'll continue to do that for as long as people are you know happy to listen and happy to ask questions. And and I'm still breathing. Well, we're we're very happy to listen, and uh, we have lots of questions, Mark. Um, that's that's an amazing um, career and explanation of what it is you do now. I wonder if there's something in that about the sort of need to constantly be positive, constantly be achieving and be successful that organisations have these days. That you know, I'm I'm not sure. Don't want to get philosophical about it, but is it something that sprouted out of the industrial revolution, the need to grow and grow and grow, and the sort of failure to acknowledge that people are sometimes sad, that sometimes people need to have a, a thorough and real connection, which can only be achieved through letting your guard down, and, and those sorts of concepts. Oh, definitely. I, I think there's um, there's a whole psychology and worldview promoted through political discourse that continues to inspire or seek to inspire people to be positive and be productive and to be efficient and effective and entrepreneurial and participate in the market and allow the market to grow almost exclusively to the cost of everything else. Yeah, I don't take the opposite view. I'm not binary on this. We need flourishing economies and we need sustainable economies and, you know, full employment or as full employment as we can get it. And to give people choice and a sense of agency and ability to exercise that agency and self-efficacy and all those really excellent words. Um, but we also need to understand that life is a balance between, you know, the joys and the sufferings and, and people's full emotional experience is part of living. And we ought not shy away or hide away from those things that make us sad or, or that we deem to be negative. They're not pleasant, but they're part of life. You know, should we embrace them? Well, I think we should acknowledge them. And I think often they can uh, lead us to really fruitful pathways. I think, I think you know, I, I kind of realised my own career in how much suffering I had seen and witnessed and, and been through as well. You know, the, the personal journey in these careers is not unscathing. You know, we, we pay a big price to, to be in the, in, in the face of death and destruction and, and all that comes with nature and, and human, you know, human-caused uh, disasters as well. So, we, we, you know, you don't, you don't get away unscathed from that sort of career. But I think the way I got through it, as an example, was to honour how I felt and to honour how other people were feeling. And just because people felt a certain way didn't mean they necessarily wanted anything done about it, they just wanted to be acknowledged. 
And I think as a leader, one of the most important things I learned was to genuinely acknowledge how people were feeling. And I said for a long time, disasters are much more a matter of the heart than the head. How people feel about a disaster is more important than what they think about it. We've got to let the emotionality back in and we ought not be fearful of it. Um, you know, can it, can it, should it dominate? Should it should it lead us? Uh, no, but it should partner with us. It should partner with our rational side and our logical side. And, you know, we need, we need both and we should rebalance our societies and our narratives, I think. You've seen uh, some great leaders on TV. Anna Bly comes to mind as one example, the Brisbane floods who inadvertently shed a tear on behalf of her community when she realised what they were going through. And when I spoke to her about it a couple of years ago, she said, Mark, I didn't even realise that was going to happen. It was a very natural response, but a very heartfelt one. And, and the minute she did that, the entire Queensland community, bar a few exceptions, of course, got behind her and said, you know, take us where we need to go. And, and she led people on an extraordinary journey through flooding and cyclones over several months with a great team of people that got most people through. So. So I think, um, uh, yeah, look, suffering is a part of life, Daniel, and it's only by disavowing it or ignoring it that we perpetuate it. Um, we ought not promote it. We need to minimise it wherever possible, but we can't minimise it if we can't see it. It's the same as vulnerability. Vulnerability is susceptibility to harm and suffering, so it's a future-oriented state. So in other words, do something about it before suffering turns up or harm turns up. But even if it turns up, you can still do something about it but you can't do anything about it if you can't see it. And so if we don't let people express how they feel and what they're going through, we don't give that a voice, then we will deny it. We'll, we will relegate it to silence. And its very causes will perpetuate and continue. And much of that sits in our economic discourse and our political discourses that continue to promote circumstances that are not helpful for people. And where and how we place people upon the landscaping is, is one great example of why people end up in so much of a pickle in disasters because we, you know, we don't necessarily think about what that place might look like in 20 years' time and how people might feel about it. How do you tie that sort of thinking into crisis management or crisis leadership um, when considering, say, that internal crisis, if you will, or the acknowledgement of what's going on for people within a crisis scenario um, and also you know, within your organisation I'm talking about, but also with the people on the ground? Yeah, I think um, I've watched I've watched COVID as a, as a great example. It's a really good leadership study. Uh, I've watched really harsh narratives come out of state premiers about each other's state, for example, and quite quite judgmental commentary, which which I think to the average person would be unhelpful. And then off late, I've seen a more compassionate commentary turn up where uh, premiers have genuinely empathised with citizens from other states and what they're going through. Now that makes a big difference. I can I can promise you it makes a big difference. It doesn't make for a perfect world, but it takes some of the stress and tension out of what people are already going through. So it's hard enough to be in lockdown. It's hard enough to be denied access to your family and loved ones. But to hear a state premier, for example, then criticise you or criticise your state for its strategies or tactics in dealing with the disease is not helpful. But we've done it. We've politicised the crisis. But I think we've also learned from it that it, that's not helpful and it's not doing anybody any good, not the least of which is the reputation of the leadership, I suspect. So I think people will always look to leadership to guide, to to exemplify, uh, to be human. I, I think I watch uh, Dr Chant in New South Wales and you know she fronts up to the camera, as does the Premier and the Health Minister, every day consistently 
on behalf of the New South Wales community, and they really are doing the best they can. Now, we don't have to agree with everything they're doing. There's been some mistakes made along the way, of course, and they'll, they'll turn up in the wash-up. But you can't, in, in principle, deny their motivation to be trying to do the right thing. And I think we need to give them time and space and room to be that way, as well as room to criticise uh, objectively and, and sensibly where we think things can be done better, and we owe it to our leaders to do that. And our leaders owe it to listen and to respond accordingly. And so really, um, I think good leadership is leadership in partnership uh, with community that allow contestation, negotiation, difference, disagreement, but keep at the top of the tree respect, uh, dignity, compassion, kindness, patience. They're, they should be at the top of the tree. And then things can happen underneath. But the minute that we lose those things and contestation and disagreement and anger and vitriol, the nastiness, all the non-virtues end up at the top. We're all in a pickle. We're all in a world of hurt. And so we ought not ever sacrifice those things that we see as virtuous. We should preserve and protect them and use them in which to navigate the world. And they have a sophistication to them, Daniel, and a, you know, a, 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 and a wisdom to them that we, we don't really understand. We, we think, for example, compassion is weakness or soft. I can promise you after 36 years, being in crisis, starting on the end of the hose and ending up in the Prime Minister's office, that being compassionate, compassionate is anything but soft. It takes enormous courage to be compassionate, to see the suffering of another human being and to do something about it, often in very adverse circumstance or limited ability. With a limited ability, limited power, limited capacity or limited economic means to do something can leave us feeling quite empty or wanting. But it doesn't matter to do something, to act in the interests of another human being or sentient being, or if you take a multi-species view, even non-sentient beings, the rivers, the forests, the planetary ecosystem, reintroduces a sense of meaningfulness. And so compassion is, it takes extraordinary courage. And I challenge anybody to say that it's weakness. It isn't. We, we make it that way because we don't have the courage to be that way ourselves. And I'm inviting leadership to turn that around and say, maybe you need to be more courageous in your leadership and see the world for the way the world really is. Do you think that style of leadership, those things like compassion, can actually influence the outcome of the crisis? I think it can. I think it needs wisdom as well. Compassion needs partners. So it needs justice. Sometimes justice is, is important. Care, consideration, uh, wisdom. They need to kind of walk in the room with compassion as well. You know, I used to have a saying, I still do actually, you know, I will never leave, let compassion leave the room. But sometimes compassion has to sit quietly in the corner whilst everything washes through because not, not everybody's ready for it all the time. And, and we can misunderstand it or misread it. We can we can fall into the space of sympathy, for example, or you know, we could be quite patronising or paternalistic in our in our behaviours and attitudes towards the suffering of others, and we call that compassion. And there's many a an example in our history, our human history, where we've misinterpreted the word and undertaken actions that have been you know far less than helpful. And the stolen generation is an example of that. That you know the the, the institutions of the of the religions thought they were being compassionate by removing children from families and we know that that's just not, that was just inappropriate, you know, full stop. Yet I think the intention at the time was to be compassionate, but compassion was grossly misunderstood. So so we have a way to go before I think we, we could call ourselves skillful in the execution of some of these things, but we have to start somewhere. So we have to give, our spell, give ourselves some room, some space to get it wrong. We need forgiveness, for example. We need tolerance to get better at these things. And we do live in a society that appears to be quite intolerant 
of some of these mistakes, and that is concerning. You know, a, a society that's geared towards self, individualism, um, superiority, the anthropocentric view of the world of humans being superior over all other species is not helpful. And, you know, many, much of society, particularly Western society, participates in that view. It comes from our philosophy from the Enlightenment period where we discovered individualism like we'd never discovered before and have pursued it rigorously for 300 years. And, you know, as I often say, we're now so individualised uh, that we have to live with ourselves. And for most people, that's a pretty painful experience. Spend a day with your own thoughts and see how you feel by the end of it. I think a lot, a lot of people could probably talk to that in recent times with lockdowns. Hugely. And we're learning a lot about what, what relationships mean to us when we can't access them. You know, and there's a lot of mental health challenges going on for that very reason, I think. And so, so, so I think, look, look, the, the refreshing thing is that there's not a person walking the planet that does not have the potential to be more compassionate or more virtuous. And it's not to say people aren't virtuous, they are. Most people act, you know, generally speaking, through a, a series of virtues or a multiplicity of virtues every day, but to the extent in which they're conscious of them varies highly. And the extent to which they're competent in them probably varies even more so. And I think also the extent to which they're prepared to, prepare to sacrifice them is concerning. So they, they're happy to let them go or lose them or drop them in favour of something they see as being more important. Economic success, productivity, efficiency, effectiveness, you know, you know, positivity, happy, happy, happy all the time at the exclusion of everything else. That's when virtue gets pushed back into the corner or relegated, you know, to the bedroom or, you know, the private closet or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. But, you know, it gets pushed into the private world and, and the public public life says, look, we're not interested. But but really, public life is very interested in what it means to, for a leader to be virtuous, what it means for society to be more virtuous. And wouldn't we benefit by taking the lessons of COVID, which is inviting us to be that way? And ironically, so is climate change. We get to solve climate change when we dethrone ourselves. When we rejoin the planetary ecosystem as a species that is a, is a participant and a beneficiary of all that the planet has to offer, but not to exploit it, not to, not, not to pursue single economic goals on the basis that the planet's there for us. It's not. It's not there for us at all. We are part of it. It's not, it's not there to be exploited, that's for sure. In that way, Mark, is talking about that crisis in that way, is, is that reframing it so that it has a positive outcome or, or, or it has an opportunity for a positive outcome? There's beauty in every experience, even the, the darkest ones. And, and I don't want to talk too much on this podcast about what I've seen in my career, but, you know, death was part of it and the circumstances surrounding those deaths were often quite tragic. But even in those circumstances, there was beauty going on. The way people were interacting, you know, caring for the wounded or the deceased or the families of such was just extraordinary, extraordinary, what, what people are capable of doing. And so I think there is beauty in every experience, but unless we know how to look for it, um, and to nurture it and to um, and to cultivate it, um, then we kind of miss what it means to be human. I think, and we miss we miss the opportunity. So, I don't wish adversity on anybody, and I don't wish harm on anybody, and I don't think a reasonable person would either if they were pushed, you know, to the end point of their arguments. You know, with the Schadenfreude, as the, as the great German word is called, exists in the mind, of, particularly in the Western mind, in Western philosophy, the the notion of retribution and payback and 
deservedness has been rich in our thinking for, you know, three, 4,000 years. But if you disaggregate it and break it down and look at the arguments, people soon come to the point, I think, where they say, look, harmfulness is not appropriate or acceptable. And, and if we have that as a premise in society, then we can navigate these adversities in a different way. Um, so, look, this is deeply philosophical, but, Daniel, it needs to be, because if we don't get our philosophies right, if we don't have a philosophy of life that helps us to navigate these complexities, then we are going to be found wanting. And what came out of the AR6 report yesterday is frightening, because what it's effectively saying is that the forecasts from 2014, the AR5 report, were grossly understated. And what has manifested in real terms is worse than we thought. And so we're on a trajectory on climate alone, let alone the other global drivers of risk and harm. That's putting us on a trajectory of great concern, great concern as a humanity, and nobody will escape the impacts. The extent to which people can cope will vary highly depending upon their wealth and their circumstances and societies and countries in which they live and so on and so forth. But again, we all enter the world of precariarity or the precarious nature of life where we started in this interview. We're going to have to work out how to navigate that. So that never goes away. And the, and the sooner we become skillful at how we navigate these things um, and accept them as being a part of life, we don't have to like them. I'm not saying they have to be joyful, but I, I do say to people you have to accept that that is part of navigating this earthly experience. And the sooner we get better at doing that more virtuously, the better off we'll all be. Do you have any experiences of that you could share from your time in emergency uh, management and leadership that you could talk about those disasters that you had to work with people and manage? So um, look, one always comes to mind, I think, because it didn't go well um, and it was, a, it was a major chemical fire in Canberra. There was half a million litres of oil was on fire and it contained um, uh, PCGs, I think the chemical additive was called, which is essentially when it burns, it produces phosgene gas, which is mustard gas. If you remember, mustard gas from World War One is highly toxic, and there was a suggestion that there was sufficient PCGs in the oil to be producing mustard, mustard gas, and it was the column of smoke was bending over the top of about 80,000 residents uh, because there was a temperature inversion that night, so the smoke wouldn't clear. And uh, we, we issued warnings to the residents about staying doors and get their windows closed and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, um, the organisation I worked for at the time, I was commissioner at the time, wasn't as skillful with the, the use of their warning system as they could have been and the message didn't get out to everybody. And in the short term, it looked fine. So no death, no injury, no loss of property apart from the factory itself and no environmental impact and no apparent health impact. And it remained that way. It, it remained true. Um, but when I got the reports on the Monday morning about the warning system, it showed that the second warning had failed. It didn't reach over 60,000 people. And I had to bring that to the government's attention and say, tell the government that we had a failure in our system and that the warnings hadn't been received by everybody. And um, the government was very nervous about that politically, and, and but the minister was very good about it. He said, well, we need to tell the truth about this. So we did. Uh, so we did tell the truth about it. And as commissioner, I took responsibility for it. And um, then we got better at the warning system and, you know, we had to address community meetings and all sorts of things, and that's part of leadership. So the first thing I'd say there is just you know, own the problem, take responsibility, step up, be accountable. That's what leadership's about. As I said, ducking and weaving it, you're asking to be accountable. You put rank on your shoulder or you, you, you pick up a title, you are asking to be accountable. And there's a full stop at the end of that. There's no ifs or buts. 
Um, some months later, I, I um, took up the I was about to take up the job of the federal government as director general of Emergency Management Australia, and I was bailed up in a restaurant by a citizen, by a lady who lived in the community. And she said, uh, have you got a minute? And I said, of course. And she said, um, I just want to tell you um, I'm so sorry to see you leave as commissioner. And uh, she said, I just want you to know I, I really trusted you. And I said, oh, that's very kind of you. Why Why do you say that? She said, well, she said, you always treated us as people, as equals. You explain things. You're always accessible to those who wanted to speak to you. She said, but most importantly, you took responsibility. She said, what happened to that chemical fire? We weren't happy about it at all but we were satisfied that you took accountability for what happened and you fixed it. She said, I just want to say thank you for that. And she said, I have always and always will trust you because of what you did. And it's a, one of the great compliments of being a you know, highly visible leader is when somebody comes up unsolicited and validates the very thing that you believe in. And I've said for a long time that, that virtues have to be socially recognised. So I can commit to being a compassionate human being but the extent of which I am one is socially determined by somebody else, by witnessing what I say and do, and that's predicated upon how I think. So if I think, speak and act compassionately, eventually someone will say he's very compassionate or she's very compassionate, and that's your measure. There, there we go. So I had many an example in my career of leading major crises, and sometimes highly covert crises. So it was crisis in people's lives. You know, families are falling apart or there'd been death in the family or a suicide or something. And we're still expected to step up as a leader and help people. And much of my leadership wasn't, wasn't in fact, in front of the TV cameras managing natural disasters, although I did plenty of that. It was helping the family who lost a son or a daughter or had cancer in the family or whatever, and having them in, in my office and hearing their story and offering up something, a kind word or a different set of employment arrangements or whatever it is that could reasonably and sometimes even unreasonably be done to help them through that crisis. And I just saw that as a duty as a leader to do that. And I think anyone in any leadership position at any level has that duty or obligation to see the whole person and the full circumstance and use their equities of power, wealth and resource to the extent to which they reasonably can to do something about it. And sometimes, Daniel, the world will ask you to be unreasonable. And, and for me, that was the Canberra fires. I was sent to, I've told this story for many a year, and it's still, it's, it's, it's relevant because I think it's timeless in terms of its lesson. The fire's a bit old now, of course, but uh, being sent down from Sydney on the morning of the 18th of January 2003 by the then Commissioner Phil Kaperberg to ask the ACT authorities, you know, were they prepared to take more New South Wales resource to protect the city of Canberra, and that was a very difficult conversation between two jurisdictions. But, you know, ultimately New South Wales wasn't able to convince the ACT at the time of the need for more resource, and, you know, history proved otherwise. But uh, on that day, I, I couldn't convince the leadership uh, to take more resource, and uh, I was dismissed out of hand, uh, not not disrespectfully, but uh, I remember having a, 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 cri- a moment of crisis where I thought, you know, have I read this fire wrong? After all, I had seen coming into camera the biggest fire I'd seen in my 20-odd years, and it's pretty obvious what I thought was about to happen, yet the local authorities didn't believe that anything bad was going to happen at all, essentially. They thought they had its measure and it was under control, or at least they were able to get it under control. And um, so I remember stepping out of the operations room and going as white as a ghost and feeling cold and clammy and almost throwing up because I doubted myself. I had a moment of profound doubt. Um, you know, followed a few a few moments later by a moment of profound insight, and it was a right wrong thing, and it wasn't to make 
my colleagues in the other jurisdiction wrong, but it was to say that their judgments were misguided. And I could see what was about to happen, but nobody else could. And what do I do about that? I had no power, uh, no permission, no resource. I had nothing. And as a uniformed officer acting under law, when you have no no legal permission and no resources and no statutory authority, you know, you're left with your ethic. You're left with your conscience. And it was my conscience said, you need to do something here. And so I went back into my jurisdiction and, and the only time in my uniform career I issued a directive to the local superintendent to release resources into Canberra. And he wasn't happy about that because he had he had his own problems to deal with in New South Wales. But the, the immediate problem was in Canberra and, you know, we had a right roll argument about that, but I, I sort of exercised my rank and authority and got the resources released. And um taught me many things, of course, Daniel, but one of the things was to trust my judgments. To to really when you when you're really pushed uh, and systems fall away and legislation no longer works, policies fail, and people around you can't necessarily see what you see, what are you going to do about it? And that is ultimately a question of ethics and a question of moral conscience. And the consequences that flow from that come with the accountability of your decision. And so I did uh, direct resources into Canberra illegally, so to speak, without permission, and uh, fortunately I was lauded by the court for doing so in the coronial inquiry some 12, 18 months later. And until that time, I wasn't sure how the court would deal with that decision, but it dealt with it favourably in the circumstance. But So why, why do I raise this? Because, because crisis brings us to our, ethic, our ethics and it, it basically stripped everything else away and says, right, you're now left with your moral conscience. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this problem? It's a moral issue. You know, it's, it, you fall back to your ethics every, each and every time. Crises reveal character. They don't create character. So if you haven't rehearsed or tuned into or refined your ethics, and most people do that every day on some level, most people aim to get better every day. So it's a natural process in my view, an unconscious one largely, but a, and a natural process. We could be more mindful about it. I think we need to be more mindful about it. But leaving that aside, crisis will reveal your character. It will reveal your moral conscience and it'll guide you on what you need to do next. And it'll be, it'll take enormous courage to act through moral conscience because we rely so heavily on systems and processes and policies and legislation and all these protective mechanisms and compliance mechanisms. And nature particularly is not overly interested in those. When nature expresses a force and humans are caught up in it, then those things often fail. And so that it really is a testament to leadership as to what we then do about it. Um, just two simple examples. Like, you know, I could talk all day about other things that happen, but but uh, but they're probably two of the most prominent, probably the most obvious because I think people know about them in some way, shape, or form. So. And they're they're interesting examples because they could so easily be referenced to history. Um, our history um, has seen many examples of a policy, a government, a war, a government in war, for instance, having policies which are we can reflect on now very poor policies, even sometimes just evil policies. Um, and it and it comes to a person, as you say, to decide what is right and what is wrong. That's right. And that is, that is the testament of leadership, I think, that, that our systems and our processes and our legislative structures, you know, generally are put together in peacetime or contextualised at, at a moment in time in, our, in the course of our history. We're always moving to history, of course, every moment of every day. But... Um, 
and and they will be found wanting in crisis. And so, uh, as I said, crisis exposes things. It exposes flaw. It exposes vulnerability. I mean, vulnerabilities exist prior to crisis. Vulnerabilities inherent in our societies and our systems, and it's often hidden because we don't go looking for it. But the crisis will reveal it. It'll show where the deficiency is. It's up to leadership to navigate us out of that. So it's also up to leadership to find those vulnerabilities before it happens, just quietly. And we're not very good at anticipatory capacity and thinking ahead too far and thinking deeply enough about some of these uh, problems that are coming up into the future. And I don't think we think about them in the context of how we want people to have um, a better experience through a difficult moment. How do you you minimise the effects? And you only know what that experience is like by reflection. So when you're going through something, it's just difficult. The emotions that turn up are difficult to navigate. What reflection gives us a chance to do is to sum it up, summarise it and say, well, was that better or worse than we thought it was going to be? One of the great causes of human suffering, of course, is ignorance. You know, things we could have otherwise known but chose for whatever reason not to know. And I think so our capacity to, or our ability to anticipate these things could be better and have conversations about them and how we might feel about them as well as what we might think. And when they do manifest in quite unique ways and ways that we may not necessarily be able to forecast, we can weigh them up and say, look, you know, did, did that basically accord with what we thought would happen or not? And I can tell you in the course of my career where people said that, look, that pretty much unfolded the way I thought it did, the suffering's pretty minimal. But when it unfolds in a way that people hadn't anticipated, the suffering is much greater. And what's frustrating is when you realise that much of that suffering could have been minimised if we thought more about the problem, if we'd actually thought a little bit more about those set of circumstances or where we had placed ourselves or what nature was trying to tell us or where, where, what our geopolitical tensions were trying to tell us, you know, what what the writing was on the wall is a great metaphor, you know, but we did refuse to see it. And then we're forced to look at it after we've had the experience. You know, I, I often quote Confucius, I'm pretty sure Confucius did actually say this, unlike some of the other great quotes we use, we use in our narratives, but he said, wisdom is learned one of three ways. You can learn it through reflection, which is the noblest form of wisdom. So looking back and learning from history, uh, you can uh, learn it through imitation, which is the easiest, so just follow your guru, you know, do as you're told. Or you can learn it through experience, which is the bitterest. And he said most people learn wisdom through bitter experience. So I would prefer to learn as much wisdom as possible through reflection, through taking the lessons of history, because they're still relevant. The context might be different, but who are we kidding to say we're so special and different in this generation that we're smarter than previous generations, you know, on, maybe on a technological sense we might be, but in terms of a lived experience and what it means to be human, I'm far from convinced that we've got it right. And I think history has so much to teach us and some of the more mature and sophisticated writings in philosophy and theology and mythology and the great bodies of knowledge, music, theatre, poetry, art, literature, have great insight into the human experience and what it means to be human and what it means to navigate co- the complexities of adversity. And and we ignore them at our peril. You know, history has, I think ultimately history is kind to us. It shows us what it is we need to learn, uh, as bitter as it may look and as ugly as it may well be and as unfair as it appears and probably was. There's still something to learn from it. And the minute we shut it off, close it off and say we don't want to know, we're perpetuating the very ignorance which will cause us the greatest suffering of all. Mark, we've covered a lot of ground today in the podcast, but I wonder, is there a 
piece of advice that you could boil down for our students who are going to graduate this MBA and probably end up in a sort of middle management or even hopefully a senior leadership role? What should they bring to crisis leadership? So, so you'll have access to the equities of power, wealth and resource. You'll have positional authority. You'll probably have some legal authority or organisational authority, some permission under policy or whatever the case might be. You'll have access to wealth, so money, budget, whatever the case might be, and you'll have access to resources. Um, ask yourself the question, What do you do you even know you have them and what are you doing with them and to what extent is it helping humanity to flourish, to move towards a greater sense of purpose, meaning, well-being, happiness? Uh, words like faith, hope, love, meaning and purpose are timeless and we should never forget about them. We should always try and remember or contextualise them into our lives. And if we're privileged enough to operate in an institution that is there to serve others, and that's what they're there for, you wouldn't think so these days. you think they're there to serve themselves, some of them, but they're actually there to advance society. Then what is it that you can mostly reasonably do to help that society or community move forward? And understand that sometimes life is going to ask you to be unreasonable about it. So you're going to have to take a big risk. You're going to have to be venturous. You're not going to be sure of the outcome and you're going to have to take a gamble and do something for somebody else or exercise your authority or your power or your wealth or your resource, your positional authority to make a difference in someone else's life. And it'll be the most honourable thing you ever do and you won't forget it and you'll build upon it and it'll add to the meaning of your life. Or you can hide behind compliance, you can do as you're told, you can follow the rules set by somebody else. You can abrogate and deny and be safe and see how that feels. And it's not very pleasant. So what sits in the middle of all of that is wisdom. Learn to know when to act. Learn to know when not to act. We can't all be noble knights on white steeds every moment of every day. But wisdom will tell us when it's time to be a certain way and what we should do about it. And, and life teaches us wisdom, Daniel. No, no experience is ever wasted. It's not. You know, I'll close off by saying this. I watched Dr. Harry on Armdo's art show on the ABC a few weeks ago, and, and it, most people know Dr. Harry. He's a vet. He's looked after animals his whole life since he was a child, essentially. And he said, he said, I just want to be known as a good bloke, and that's the best way to epitomise Dr. Harry. He's a good bloke. He's dedicated his life to the welfare of animals, and he's done extraordinary things for the welfare of animals, you know, sometimes quite mundane things on a day-to-day basis, and then extraordinary things by exception but he's been prepared to do them. And that's an exemplar of anybody's life, that you will be at some point called to account or called forward to do something for someone else which will be incredibly venturous, risky, uh, brave, courageous. And it could be highly overt or it could be highly covert, but it's going to happen. When it does, don't miss the chance. Jump through the door and keep going. It'll be the best thing you ever do. That's amazing advice, uh, Mark Crosswiller. Thank you for coming on the show. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast.